Hi, I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And I'm Ariel Seagard, Acting Alum. And in this episode, we take a look at the career of Gordon Smith, Emmy-winning writer of Better Call Saul. I'm gonna be full of spoilers. If you haven't seen this, get out now. I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't actually believe spoilers like lessen anyone's enjoyment of anything, so I'm gonna be spoiler happy. We're gonna be talking about Better Call Saul. We're gonna be talking about Breaking Bad. We're not saying if you haven't seen those shows, like, you know, you can't listen, but you might want to watch a little. Better Call Saul over, I think it's three, four seasons out, it's basically really formed its own voice. And Gordon Smith got to be there at the ground floor for Better Call Saul because he paid his dues on Breaking Bad as an assistant. The sort of entry-level PA production assistant stuff, I was supporting both the editorial department, so post and and the writer's department. It was everything from getting lunches and, you know, going on runs and at the time, which doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but we were still distributing like dailies and cuts on DVD, right. which meant that I had to like run them all over town and drop them oh, off sure. at different places. So I'd have to do runs to AMC and do runs to Sony and just get them get get physical copies of DVDs and like make them, burn them, label them, and then send them out all over town. Right. The nice thing it was that it opened up opportunities for you know doing stuff. Uh, in the digital space for the show because the producers were very generous and are like, hey, you, you, we, know you, we know you have these aspirations. Right. Can you write this game for the website? Can you write this you know, copy for the back of the DVD box or things like that? The big thing I would say about being a PA, it seems like everyone wants to kind of skip those steps. I, I did learn a tremendous amount and you have a great opportunity to be like boots on the ground, learning from the people around you and if you have a good attitude and do your job well, they notice. Like, everyone wants you to do that job well because it's like, you know, it feels like it's grunt work, but if you have a great attitude, it goes so far <laughs> towards people like looking at you and being like, oh, maybe I can give you more. You're not sweating, <laughs> you know? I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep loading you up until you break, essentially. So I, I was PA and that, that was that gig. Um, and then the producer's assistant uh, role uh, a lot of it is maintaining sort of schedule for your for your boss and making sure that everybody who needs to get in touch with them can get in touch with them and also being able to prioritize when that's the case because it's like, oh, the president of the network's calling. Probably need to pull him out, you know. Um, making judgment calls and just using your discretion and being somebody that your your boss can lean on and kind of trust to, to make those kinds of calls and because of our, our, how we produce the show. You're the primary line of communication between all of production and the showrunner in this case. So like, it meant that you know everything was, props were coming in, all the things for review, all these questions from set, and again, you had to kind of know, everything's burning, so it's like, okay, this is burning to this degree, this fire's like here, this fire's like here. Which fire do I have to put out first? Because like, this is somebody calling me, telling me they absolutely need to do this, right. but it's like, somebody else has a need too, so sure. you're kind of balancing like, and uh, being able to assess like, in terms of what's, what, where, where the, every second you're working, someone's time is burning and that's all money that's going down the drain, so you kind of want to know where the most expensive fire is and like For put sure. that out. And it's usually production. Like if something's happening and it's holding up production, right. you're, you're just wasting a ton of money if you don't Absolutely. put that fire out. 
I love how he starts talking to our students about the qualifications for PA and how hard of a job that is. It's so essential for our students to know that. And, and when also the paying their dues thing, which is such a cliche, and, and everyone hates you, oh, you got to pay your dues, kid, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, we know, we know. And a lot of people don't want to. No, God, no, no one wants to. No. <laughs> but I think part of, I mean, it's kind of like anytime you do a job, showing up, Showing up. Showing up early, you know. Being on time. Reliable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like the very basics of not just this industry, but any industry. And it's also the attitude behind it. A lot of right. people think it's beneath them. Yeah. And if you go in and, and learn the ropes, I mean, the knowledge alone that you get from that. Right. And, I mean, he got to work with the writers sort of pre-pro and, you know, in post. And he was eager. Yes. And because of that... They gave him more, you know. That was the thing. They, you prove yourself with this, then they'll give you this plus that, you know. You bring in four coffees, but then four coffees in a bagel. But eventually that's, hey, can you stay around? What do you think of this line? And and just, again, that positivity goes such a long way. And being able to talk to people and really listen, too. Sure. That's the difference. What you do as a writer's assistant is, um, I mean, it varies from show to show, but for me it was mostly, you're, you're taking notes in the room. So you are taking down everything. So people are talking and you're trying to organize all the pitches and the pieces of dialogue and sort of get it in a form that remembers what the room was doing, remembers what, you know, the 18th pitch on, this, on a scene looked like so that somebody could go through and be like, yeah, there was that piece of that one pitch that really works in the final form. And there's this piece that, that works here. Um, so you're trying to keep tabs on all of that so that when it comes time for, for the writers to go out and we, we work on index cards. So like when the scene is broken, we write it down on, on, on index cards and put them up on a board. Right. But those are very condensed. So it's like you want to be able to read the card and go, oh yeah, there's a piece of dialogue here. I remember it and go find it in the notes. You're also, you know, you can be the keeper of continuity a lot of times and just knowing what people have pitched, what made it into the script. Oh, yeah, well, who, didn't we have a piece of dialogue about this? And it's also sometimes just your first line of defense against bullshit because it's like, you know, someone will pitch something and be like, what if there was a poison that did this and then it made this person do this? And it's like you can just quickly search and be like, Absolutely. is there a poison that does that? Right. No, that's not really how that works. Oh, is there a law that's this? No, there's not really that. So. Right. So just like a baseline. You can sure. we obviously stretch to make make the story work. Right. We stretch all the time, but it's like right. the sort of classic example is the um the Mercury Fulminate in season two of yeah. Breaking Bad. Um, which Mercury Fulminate is in fact an explosive and it is it does look that way. But it, the amount that he had would not blow out those windows. You know, right. it just wouldn't be that degree of explosive, that right. kind of thing. So, But it's like, you, there's a truth there, but then there's also like, right. like come on now, we want it to be, we want it to be cool. Yeah, bit. so, you know, it's that kind of knowing when you can boost the level to 11 when you gotta right. play it straight. Exactly. So it was very cool to be in that, that room and to be a fly on the wall. You know, I, I talk in class about a comic book store guy from The Simpsons. He's the one who talks like a, Obviously, this is a lie. That is not how the scene would have played out. Thank you. And by the way, if you go see a movie in Los Angeles, you'll, you'll, there's a fair amount of those guys in the audience. There's so many guys in the audience like that. Some of them might even look like me. I, I won't lie. But in essence, that's what like the writer's assistant part of his gig was, particularly because he had Breaking Bad, which 
had a character who's a scientist, who's a uh-huh. chemist. And so, like, trying to have enough of a science in there that it doesn't feel fantastical. Well, I always wondered that, too. And so many times you watch a movie, you watch a show, and you think to yourself, man, the writers really either had to do the research or they're really smart on the subject. And you always wonder how far that goes. Right. So it's almost nice to know that they do, wait, well, wait, you can't have that. That doesn't work. That's not how that works. Yeah. It's like there's truth and there's mm-hmm. truthy and then there's no truth whatsoever. And the beauty of Breaking Bad is you watch it, you believe it. Oh, yeah. Hands you know, down. That show is so well put together. And the pilot episode, if you if you only could see one episode, watch that one. It really is a perfect pilot. And yet that show didn't get popular for a while. It didn't. And it's it's interesting how it, it took a slow start for, you know, my opinion. And I'm pretty sure everyone agrees with me one of the best series out there. I watched the first season on a marathon. I was hooked. Word of mouth. I told everybody. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, as uh, Gordon Smith was explaining to us, it's like the show wasn't a hit right away, but it built up steam. Yeah. And then it became that show everyone was watching. We were aware when things started getting more so, but when I started on the show, no one knew it, honestly. In season three, which is when I started, no one knew it. I was, it was like, I'd tell people, it's like, oh, I work on this show, and they'd be like, oh, what, what show? I'm like, well, it's, it's on a channel you've never heard of, and then be like, okay, what's the channel? They'd press, and I'd be like, well, it's the other show that the channel that Mad Men's on, and, right. and they'd be like, oh, okay, cool, but they never didn't, they hadn't heard it, they hadn't seen right. it. Um, and then it's really started to kind of pick up in season four. Like there was a definite curve where like people sure. were picking up the show more and more and more and more and more and right. more. So I think there were a couple things. I mean, it had gotten word of mouth and people were starting to sort of be like, right. no, have you seen this? No, have you seen and like that, that word of mouth? And, that, yeah. and obviously we, you know, there'd been a bunch of Emmy nominations and some, and Brian had won consistently to that point. So yeah. it was like. That was out there, and also we got lucky in the timing because um, Netflix streaming really started becoming accessible, and they put the first three seasons on, and a lot of people caught up on the first three seasons before season four, and so they went into season four going, oh my God, what's going to happen from from the end of season three, which ends with the sort of semi-cliffhanger of, of, uh, of Jesse having shot Gale in the face. I'm going to be full of spoilers. Right, if you right. haven't seen this, get out now. I don't, I don't care. I don't. I don't actually believe spoilers like right. lessen anyone's enjoyment of anything. So right. I'm going to be spoiler heavy. Yeah. But season three into season four, I think, I we were, think people were able to right. kind of catch up in a good way. Spoilers. Let's start there. <laughs> I hate spoilers. I can't stand them. But he just said it doesn't matter. He said that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just, I, I don't want to know anything, and then I go into it in complete shock. Talk about Jesse killing. Oh, my goodness. Let's relive all of Breaking Bad right now. I mean, <laughs> it lived and died by those great twists and turns along the way. And word of mouth got so strong there. Like he said, season three into season four, everybody was watching it. Everybody was talking about it. And still to this day, when I hear someone hasn't watched it, I'm like, I will sit you down right now and watch the whole thing with you all over again. And I have several times. And I remember even during the finale, it was like everyone knew, don't call. Don't call. (laughs) No one called anyone. No one texted. Nothing on Facebook. No, you you become like a bear. You hibernate until 8 p.m. And this show came out of the mind of Vince Gilligan. Vince Mm -hmm. Gilligan was on X-Files before he created Breaking Bad. And... 
he wrote this terrific episode called Drive, which starred Brian Cranston. And that's how he also got that idea of like, well, Brian Cranston could play this role, even though Brian Cranston was known as the dad Malcolm on Malcolm in, in the, the Middle. middle. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> such a drastic change. And what Gordon Smith got to do is he got to work with Vince Gilligan. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons Gordon Smith's career is where it is now. He truly did learn from one of the best. One of the great things about being a producer's assistant was that I got to go to Albuquerque whenever Vince was directing, which was a totally different experience. It's not just sort of being in the writer's room, which I knew the rhythm of a little bit, but this was just like being thrown to the wolves and production was is a very different animal and the pace is very different. And so it was just like, okay, what am I doing? What's what's happening here? And but watching some of those scenes play out, like there's a big scene where Jesse confronts Walt, and it took it took a full day to shoot that, and it was really challenging. And Vince was like trying to work with the actors and get figure out what was working and what wasn't working, but something wasn't clicking for him. And so it was like sure. that was a, a really interesting moment to see like what this creative process was like and how grueling it was and how like small things were really making a difference and. Absolutely. We had a similar thing with blowing Gus's face off and oh like gosh, just yeah. getting all of the technical because that's like that was like three different shots that were all married together and posed right. because you you couldn't blow the door off and have a human like we had to do the blow, door blowing off and then the the dolly in and all of those parts were really challenging to make sure that they went off just right and right. so it was it was this like marriage of like that precision of of technique and the sort of overall artistic vision was was great and really educational. And if you've seen that scene uh, of uh, Gus's face being blown off or half off, right? Half off, yeah. Because he still had a little bit. (laughs) And you know the best part, he straightened his tie. He did. I was Uh, like, oh, how did he live? Oh, wait, he didn't live really. (laughs) No, no, I don't think. That's, oh, no, he's dead. Okay. So Gordon Smith got to be part of Vince Gilligan's team for that. And which meant seeing kind of everything work together to make this. And then he gets the call. Yeah. They say, hey, you're ready for the major leagues, <laughs> you know. And uh, lo and behold, he went from being a writer's assistant, producer's assistant, mm-hmm. to actually just being a writer. How amazing would that feel to mm. get that call and be able to just slip into that new role, the one that you've been dreaming of. But he, he does talk about what that means about losing all the different responsibilities and being able to just focus on the one. The transition was fast, as I say. It was like one day I was Vince's assistant and the next I was not. It wasn't hard to get into the room in the sense of like, you know, I'm here and everyone's talking about the story. I'm going to talk about the story. But I used to... I used to know everything, like as the showrunner's assistant, I knew all the information that was going out to everybody. I was in like, just sort of in the mix of everything. And then suddenly I wasn't, I was only involved and only had to do the story. And it was like, I don't, I have no idea what's going on with production. I don't know what's going on with hiring directors. I have no idea what what meetings are going on. And that was a little weird for for a few months. And then... And then I just forgot about it and was like, I don't care anymore. I don't, want, I don't, I don't need to know that, honestly. Better people than I am uh, are handling that stuff now. Um, in terms of breaking the story and what we do, we work very slowly. We've, we've had the luxury of kind of a lot of time. We, we work much slower than a lot of rooms, which is great. So, yeah, so we get into the room and usually it's like we spend two, two three weeks maybe just sort of blue skying and being like, all right, where did we leave things and what is that 
do for us? Like, where can we go? Just ideas about characters and where they could go and what we could do. We really don't do what a lot of shows do. We don't really break a season. Like, we, we, we will have ideas about where things could go. We don't lay them out. We don't kind of set... End points, or we we will kind of lay them out on a board and yeah. just be like, this maybe this, maybe, this, maybe be, that. Yeah, like, but like big guiding lights that we've had right. often change and move, yeah, sure. and like they they almost always come faster, but sometimes they go slower than than we think they will. And that was the same on Breaking Bad. We had a ton of ton of things like that that were just like, we had uh, a line that we kept thinking was going to happen where like. When Hank finds out that Walt is dealing and confronts Skylar, that she was going to be like, well, take your best shot if you think you can take my husband down. And we were like, that's really cool. That would be really interesting to see the two of them together like that and fighting against Hank. And it's like, we just never got there. Right. Like, we, you can kind of see how it guided into the show, like sure. some, some sense of that, but we never got literally to that plot point, um, which I think is a... It's a virtue of the way that we tend to work because it's like we have ideas and if, if wherever we, we think we want to be and where we are don't match up, we're just like, well, we're, this is what we do. We don't, we don't say, well, we have to get to such and such a point by episode five, so we have to do this, 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 and this to get to that. Yeah. Just, it's, it's almost always sort of, I feel like it's backward looking, so it's like, what have we done and where are the characters? Where do they most logically go next? And that has served us in, in good stead because... I think it allows the opportunity to like investigate things and pull them forward and be like, oh, you know, we have this moment. What did that, what, can we explore that more? It's fun and I think it, it, it is, it is, a, it feels like you've planted something right. and like, ah, that's paid off here. But it's like, no, we just kind of looked like, at what, what actually ended up in the show and sort of asked what it means for down the line. And sure. then, and then, you know, when we get to it, we, we get to it. It's mostly like, okay, you know, this character's here. And, you know, Mike's here. We know he does these things in the future. Is he there yet? No, he's not. It doesn't feel like he's there yet. Okay, well, what could get, what, is there something, what are the intermediate steps that would get you there? Okay, well, we need to get something like this or something like this that would move that character. It is a little bit baffling because we have the backstories of these characters that we're exploring as well as knowing that there's this whole lump of Breaking Bad that informs all of those decisions that we want to make sure are, like, fit and then there's because Saul Goodman survives Breaking Bad there's also after there's a period of time after Breaking Bad that we we set stuff so we have these different yeah. we have we have a bunch of different time periods that we're yeah, like trying to keep sure. keep uh, keep in order which uh, our writer's assistant and our script coordinator and our other our assistant staff has done a great job in like keeping track of I love how he talks about taking their time to investigate the characters, really taking their time and not having to rush to get to a certain place and to really investigate. And also, too, like, what's interesting about Better Call Saul, it's kind of like, that's a train that's going. Mm -hmm. But we know eventually that train's going to link up with the train that is Breaking Bad. Yeah. And in Better Call Saul, though, they also show you a little bit of Saul's fate Mm -hmm. after the events of Breaking Bad. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of tracks they gotta keep track of, and you know, this is the issue of a prequel. Yep. You know, prequels, like, you're beholden to what comes after you, and we've already seen all that. Mm-hmm. How do you keep it interesting when we know the end game? And I think Better Call Saul has shown years in that they're able still to surprise you, because it's so rooted in him. And 
basically like that's been their compass. Yeah. You know where you're going to go, but yet you have so much story to tell. Yeah. I think just... a lot of room to play. And, and the writers found that even the actors would help them mm-hmm. with the work they already did on Breaking Bad. There was only so much backstory that had ever come across in that show. So they had to make a lot of this stuff up from whole cloth. And so it was up to the writers and also even in some cases working with the actors to figure out what made Saul Saul. Actually, the stuff that was, that was sort of given as backstory for Saul or like ideas for Saul, which, or rather backstory for Saul that are not things that he says in the course of Freaking Bad, but even those we've, we've had taken liberties with because we're like, oh, is there a way to make that, the thing that he says in Breaking Bad true? Yeah. Is it absolutely true on its surface, but the way it actually comes out, like there's the line where he says uh, in Breaking Bad, you know, I once convinced a woman that I was Kevin Costner and it, it, it worked because I believed it. <laughs> and it's like, I, and the lie worked because I believed it. And then we see him kind of pull that off, but it's not actually the way that we would have thought in, in Better Call Saul. He, he does pull that trick off. So we've, we've done some adaptation. We didn't really have much of a backstory for, for Mike at all. We knew certain details from like one interview with Hank, I think, and we took those and we sort of went, okay, well, we know these things are true. Jonathan Banks had approached us and was like, you know, that woman who waves at me and has, is there with Kaylee, I don't think she's my daughter. I think she's my daughter-in-law. And, so, and he's like, and I think, and, but you know, at that point we knew his son wasn't around. We'd never seen him. We'd never talked about him, none of that. And so we're like, okay. He, and so he, he pitched that his son was a boxer who died in the ring. Mm. And then he's like, yeah, I really think that this is, this is this idea. And he just pitched it and he's like, yeah, this is what, it was something that he was kind of working on as an actor. He was like, this is sort of what I'm working on as my interior life for what, where I am in my circumstances. Um, And we went, that's cool. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to think about it. And then we started talking about it and we're like, well, maybe there's something there about the sun and maybe the sun, the sun certainly seemed to be dead because it seemed like he wasn't there in Breaking Bad. So we started asking those questions that obviously led to to the episode. So we're very liberal with sort of understanding, but we didn't have that much to go off of except for sort of like the established pieces of information about them that they'd said. And even then we're we're still trying to grapple with like, okay, is that real? Did do we have to take that as canon? Do we have to take that literally? Do we have, is that true? Is that a lie? Is that a someplace? Is that a poetic truth? Um, So we've, we've been trying to, get as flexible as we can, basically. It's cool to hear that the actor's personal choice for the character's backstory helped inform the writers, and they were open to hearing that and working with them to get there. And and also, too, these actors had already played these characters for years. (laughs) You know, so it'd be kind of silly not to talk to the actors, but yet not every writer or director has the same kind of trust and confidence. True. I wish we could say that was, that was the case, but it's not. And, you know, the thing they came up with Mike's backstory, mm-hmm. where Mike's son was a cop, and Mike was as well, and the actor, he basically does a monologue about what happened to his son. Yeah. And it is like the most heartbreaking scene. My boy was stubborn. My boy was strong, and he was going to get himself killed. So I told him. I told him I did it, too. 
that I was like Hoffman, getting by. And that's what you heard that night. Me talking him down, him kicking and screaming until the fight went out of him. He put me up on a pedestal. And I had to show him that I was down in the gutter with the rest of them. Broke my boy. I broke my boy. All of that came from the actor doing his own take on the character with one little exchange. Exactly. From one moment of Breaking Bad, which begets this beautiful, beautiful speech that got Jonathan Banks an Emmy nomination. And I Mike, hope. the character, is yeah. such a relatable character, and it, but also so interesting, so many different levels, and the way he plays it is yeah. beautiful. He, he does not say much. No, he, and he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. Uh, and I think this writer's room, from the way uh, Gordon Smith describes it, they have a really open communication between the directors and the writers and the actors to make sure they're being true to the story, even if they're maybe tweaking it from where Breaking Bad was. Which allows the writers to have the freedom to fail as long as they try. And failing is okay. Failing's okay. Because from failure comes... Success. I was going to say more failure, but success sounds so much better. For me, it's it's knowing the room and also knowing the room and not being afraid to be wrong like or to be contradicted like you're going to think okay here's this pitch and i i can see it in my head and it's perfect and then you pitch it and then it kind of it either comes together or you feel like you pitched it perfectly or not but like maybe it doesn't get a response and it's like sad face but whatever you know you can if it's if it's really perfect you can come back around to it. If it's really perfect, it'll be the thing that somebody else will come back around to and like be like, well, what about this thing that, you know, we didn't, we, we discarded as a thought. So it's, it's kind of, to me, it's, it's, it's really good about not being precious about it, you know, just be like, hey, here's a thought, you know, what if we did it this way? Yeah. Also, that, even, that, even that language is yeah. great. Right. Like, what if we, well, here's the bad version. Here's the bad version <laughs> right. is a great one because yeah. you're trying to, because then you're, you're saying, look, here's the architecture that I'm picturing. I'm yeah. picturing, you know, this, this, this thing. And you may not be able to pull up the, like, the perfect polished version immediately. But if you can pull up, here's the architecture. It's the bad version would be blah, 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 blah. It's yeah. like, you know, it's the, the super cliche version, but you, right. you get the idea. Get the, like, yeah. is there a world where this happens? It also helps people kind of not feel defensive and not feel like they're judging. It, it, it's, it's, some, it's tricks that are sort of like improv-based tricks almost to like keep people going, okay, well, let's play with that. Let's think about that. And if, you know, people will have to reject things, like you'll probably reject things, they'll reject things, but... It helps make it feel like it's you're just you're just building. Hey, we're just playing. We're just right, talking here. Right, uh, right, when it becomes right, more right. confrontational, it becomes more like I, I actually tend to be fairly argumentative myself, like in my in my personal dealings with life. And so, like, if somebody starts arguing with me, I'm just like, I'm gonna f-ing destroy you. <laughs> and like, it just I can't help it, and I have to like remind myself, no, 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 it's just we're just having a conversation here. No big deal. You know, one thing he said, and I this is an expression I use in writing class too is uh, you can't be too precious about these things. If you treat your first draft like it's awesome, like I just came up with perfection, you're not going to be much of a writer. See how it plays. You know, say a line, I thought it was great at 2 a.m. when I was writing it on a cocktail napkin. 
But being open to yeah. that. Someone coming back and being like, well, what if we try? Yeah. Yeah. There's an art of uh, giving a note and there's yeah. an art of taking a note. Yeah. Yeah. No defense. Yes. Yeah. As an actor too, you know this, it's like you get notes from the director, you don't put up a wall or a shield because in that room, if you start to put up the wall, you're not going to hear anything, yeah. you know? And in a collaborative medium like TV, where you have a writing staff, it's a team. <laughs> it's, it's not a, just one it's player. It's a team. And just not, again, just not being afraid to be wrong when you pitch an idea and being open. And on Better Call Saul, Gordon finally got to see his own episode, which was awesome. And I wonder how he took any notes. This is my first produced episode of, yeah, of produced television. Episode. It's it's fascinating. It's like as the writer on set, you're kind of the emissary of the writers' room. So you you're there to answer questions and kind of make sure that the the tone and the feeling, everything that was kind of discussed, because you know we discuss these things for hundreds of man hours, right? right? An episode, right. if we spend two weeks with 10 people in the room, which is more than we do, but you know, you're know, you there for a long time and you've got the collective wisdom of all of that work right. where you know, production gets the episode eight days before shooting right. and they have eight days to prep it and then they're in it and right. then they're shooting at a pace to try and get it done in eight, eight days. So it's like, sure. they're, 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 they're great people, but they're, they're working at a speed and they, they, only know, they only know up to the episode that they have. So you're there to be the kind of representative of everything and be the right. eyes and ears and voice of the, of the showrunners to the, to the degree that you can so that if something looks like, eh, that's, a, that's not a choice that we want to make, yeah. not because it's bad choice, just because it doesn't actually feel like the thing that was discussed. Sure. You step in and be like, could we maybe try this? You know, can we maybe block this slightly differently? It feels when when I look at that blocking, it doesn't tell the story that we need that piece to tell for the future or right. for for what it is or for you know the the tone is wrong. Usually, director's your point person or yeah. maybe one of the other producers, like one of the dedicated kind of right. onset producers sure. or something like right. that. It's it's gauche yeah. to go straight to the actors and be like, let me give you this note. I know yeah, there's a director, right, right. but that. Like, you, you know, give the spirit of it because you should be able to give the spirit of the note in the same way that you would to the director as okay. you would to the actors, Absolutely. which is like, here's what I'm trying to, here's what I think is missing. Sure. Tell them that. Right, and exactly. They're free to be like, well, I think I'm, I'm envisioning it differently in terms of how I'm cutting it. They've spent more time and more energy, probably, hopefully, yeah. in sort of envisioning the shots and how things are going to cut together. So right. you want to trust that these are, professionals who know what they're doing so you know tap into that resource but Definitely. but yeah it's, it's it's an interesting process Definitely. i just think it's interesting that the production only has eight days to prepare <laughs> <laughs> and they only have up until that episode like you said so it's interesting to know how much they have to put their faith in those pages that are in front of them and then with the writers showrunners being on set and being able to be kind of the voice behind and in front of those those pages. I, I find it fascinating that it's such a team. And put in context, too, a show like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, I mean, they're really cinematic stories. Oh, like they're definitely. Not, it's not just a multicam sitcom shoot. You know, these shows, like, they, they look like movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our TVs are bigger now, and they're they're flatter, and they're more beautiful. And so they have eight days, and meanwhile, a movie might have months and months to shoot two hours, they have eight days to put together, or 45 minutes, 50 minutes, maybe even more. Yeah. It's a lot. So, yeah, the page has to have it. Yeah. And when we're talking of Gordon Smith, you know, and his contribution to the show, he wrote 
what, for me, is the best episode of Better Call Saul. Chicanery, which is from season three. And this one scene nails it. I am not crazy. I know he swapped those numbers. I knew it was 1216. One after Magna Carta, as if I could ever make such a mistake. Never. Never. I just, I just couldn't prove it. He, he covered his tracks. He got that idiot at the copy shop to lie for him. Mr. McGill, please, you don't have to go. You think this is something? You think this is bad? This, this chicanery? He's done worse. That's billboard. Are you telling me that a man just happens to fall like that? No, he orchestrated it. Jimmy, he defecated through a sunroof. And I saved him. And I shouldn't have. I took him into my own firm. What was I thinking? He'll never change. He'll never change ever since he was nine. Always the same. Couldn't keep his hands out of the cash drawer. But not our Jimmy. Couldn't be precious Jimmy. Stealing them blind. And he gets to be a lawyer? What a sick joke. I should have stopped him when I had the chance. And you, you have to stop him. Michael McKeon, who starred as a comedic actor. I didn't in, know that. He was Spinal Tap, uh, Laverne and Shirley. Oh, oh, he was. Yeah, yeah. So he's he comes from comedy. I knew he looked familiar. It's perfect drama. You know, two-minute monologue he gives. And Bob Odenkirk, same thing. Humongous comedic actor and writer long before Breaking Bad. Uh, Mr. Show, which is wonderfully naughty <laughs> comedy that was on HBO, a variety show. And yet these comedic actors show such great dramatic chops. Like we always say, you know, there's comedy and drama, but it's the way that these characters go about each word. You believe every single thing that they say, even if it's something that's supposed to be funny, you know the seriousness because it means something to them. You know, it's their character, their choice, and the reason why they did that. They have a backstory. They have a reason why this character decided to do it. But especially with Bob, oh my goodness, with the way that he just so gracefully, so subtle in the way he does it. Bob is an incredible writer and stand-up and comedian. Most of his Emmy nominations to date have been for writing. And he's actually incredibly respectful of our process. He'll come by once a season and just like have lunch with us, but he never wants to know what we never pitch him. He doesn't want to talk about the show or he's just is like, he just wants to check in with us and be like, hey, you guys do what you're doing and, and we'll perform it. Um, once in a great while, there'll be some scene where it'll be like, eh, well, maybe we'll let, you know, we'll let Bob loose for a little. We'll, 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 we'll see if he's okay with just like going, going on a run if he's there. But he's actually better in those circumstances if it's like, here's the sense of it. Mm-hmm. And then in, production, in like a production meeting or a, a tone meeting, we'll be like, if Bob feels like it, let him go. And occasionally he'll be like, hey, you know, this scene is great. What if we did, we, I feel like we're missing a, a, a chance to do that kind of riff. And it'll be like, okay, we'll try and write something or give him something to work from. I think it also really helps just to know, I think this has helped with a lot of people. It helped with, certainly with, with Brian Cranston as well, but it's like knowing that any range, any emotional range is available. Can Bob do comedy? Bob can do comedy. Like Bob is a, a you know, comic genius so like if we want to do something funny 
great. And he, he's going to be able to Absolutely. kind of land it. Yeah. So we can write to that. If we don't want to, we feel confident with that too. We also know that if we're like, hey, this would be funny. And he's like, ah. it's like, oh, we don't want to do that. That's not funny. It's not, it's, it's not passing the test, you know? So um, I think it, it does give us some, some tools in our kit, basically. But, but far more often than not, it's all really, we, we don't do a ton of, like, very, very minimal improv or off script it's like it's very small and they're the all of the actors are very respectful of of that i was just thinking how often i watch a show or a movie and it kind of sounds like maybe they improved a little do you when you write do you often have those times where you think oh maybe if the characters want to take a little liberty well i, I think inherently you, when you're writing dialogue part of you is in the back of your head it's always like okay well Someone's got to deliver this. So even if you think, oh, it's the best line ever, like, it's got to come out of someone's mouth yeah. in a way that doesn't seem like I came up with it or some other writer came up with it, but that they just thought of it. Right. So, you know, kind of going back to what Gordon said about uh, not being precious, I think that's part of it. Yeah. It's like, have enough confidence in the work you're doing that if they change it, so be it. And you're giving them the freedom to let a scene play. To let a scene breathe. I mean, you, you watch a Better Call Saul episode. There's not that many scenes. You know, it's so different than any other show. And Gordon Smith described how, like, it has affected his style as a writer. Being in this environment that says, it's okay, let them talk. Like, it, we don't have to cut away so fast. That's cool. But it's very specific to this show. And as Gordon Smith described, like, it has set him up as a different kind of writer than if he was on a different show besides these two. I think it's impacted my writing style more. I think um, the sort of house style on both shows, ir irrespective of the, the content, it's slightly different than some shows that I've seen. It's, it's very, um, like, because there's a lot of um, psychological nuance, for lack of a better term, of, uh, uh, in how, the, in like what the dramas are about. The dramas are so much about like, who are these people? <laughs> you know, like, what are they thinking? So there's a lot of liberty that I will now take that I've, I've learned from this, the house style of like, not being afraid to throw in a slug line that's just a purely emotional state. That's like, mm -hmm. here, this is what they're thinking so that you know what we should be feeling so that it's especially because we're, we're our production is so distant from the writer's office it helps communicate to the people that are reading it blind like right. what are we supposed to be doing here what is how what is the feeling of this scene that you might not get from just the dialogue what's the like we're not going to have a chance to to run this thing over and over and like workshop it or hope it hope yeah. that it gets there we need to know really what are they kind of what's the what's the arc what does it look like yeah. You know, hopefully it's it's not necessarily being like, and they're feeling this at this right. point. That's right. bad writing. Right. But like, if you can kind of come up with a way to to explain sort of an emotional state or how something impacts uh, right. what what's landing at a certain point, yeah. um, that that I think has been really useful in my own writing. I'm much less invested in, or I, I'm I, I don't do a lot of like the sort of like criminal world kind of stuff that, or leaving the le legal world that we do on Better Call Saul, they're not things that I usually do on my own, but that sort of style is something that I, I think has been really liberating to just be like, oh, you know, if you need something, if you need to call a shot, we call shots all the time. Not even because it's the sense of, in the same way, yeah. it's not like telling the director, we need this shot. Sometimes it is, but more often it's like, 
here's an idea for a way to open this scene. We've had a little bit more time and a little bit more luxury to give you a sense of what kind of shot might give us the feeling that we're looking for for this scene. So we'll include it. And if, you know, the conversation with the director, they're like, yeah, do you really need that shot? Oh, we just thought it was a cool shot. Do you have another one? Yeah, I was hoping we could start it this way. Great, right. start it that way. We don't care. Like it's, yeah. it's, but it's a baseline to start a discussion of like, here are some ways to see this or like yeah. here's a shot that might be cool and, and obviously there's a series of meetings that where you have where you talk to them and then can have those discussions. So so that's helpful. What's unique about TV versus film is like film the director, you know, kind of drives the boat. Like we all know Michael Bay did all those Transformers, but yeah. can you tell me who wrote them? Yeah, that's true. In the case of TV it's very different though because the directors are almost like hired guns. And part of the skill of being a TV director is you got to be able to come in and that crew's work together and the writers have worked together. You're the new kid. Yeah. And yet you're the one calling the shots. It's interesting because you hear in, in class about how, you know, don't write for the director. You know, you, yeah, you're yeah. just... Don't direct from the page. That's right. That's right. You should be telling that part. You're the, the writer. <laughs> <laughs> I've told so many students, no, no, don't over direct it. And then he just said, it's okay to direct it's it a okay. little. A so... little bit. Okay. It was interesting just to know that they have that ability to do so. And they take advantage of it when they can. Well, like, they have such great cinematic quality in that show. So oh. clearly they're getting really good directors. So. Yes. They're both elevating each other, yeah. you know? And it's funny, all this talk of Saul, it's like, okay, when is the new season? Do they know where they're going? You know, all these questions. We've waited long enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's that question of then for Gordon Smith. It's like, do they have a whole roadmap of where this show's going to end or not? And uh, his answer was a little vague. surprising. A little vague, too. They know where they want to go, but again, taking the time to find out these beats. Right. It's exciting to hear him talk about it. Process of discovery in that yeah. writer's room. We kind of make it up as we go along. We have some hopes. We have some stuff that we're like, oh, we could do this. This would fit in really nicely. Um, I have a couple of things that I really hope we get to, but by and large, we haven't nailed that down. It's like building the railroad, and you kind of want to make sure all of the spite, like the, that you're not building like this, that they're all going to go and connect at the right points. So I think before we can kind of be like, okay, we're definitely going to land here. We're, we want to make sure that we're kind of heading in the right direction. But we definitely love those, and we want to make sure that we pay off. The, right now, the character of Jimmy McGill and the character of Saul Goodman, they're not the same person. They really feel like different people to, to us when we talk about them. And so we're like, okay, how do you get this guy, this guy to this guy? Okay, we're a little closer. Okay, we're a little closer. We're a little closer. So we want to make sure that all of those points along the line match up. What an incredible opportunity for an actor. I'm Jekyll right now, but soon I get to be Hyde. Yeah. Uh, have you made it to the end of this current season? I have not. I'm well on my way. I'm so tempted just to spoil it now. <laughs> just just so you're all here now. <laughs> Suffice it to say, by the end of the season, the road from Jimmy to Saul is much further along. And what's really interesting, what they do with Mike because Mike's a different Mike yeah. <laughs> in, in Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Yeah. So if at this point you guys have not received any new reasons to watch Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, then we, we, I guess we really haven't done our job. We so, failed. <laughs> we failed you miserably. <laughs> but if nothing else, you definitely got a reason to really appreciate Gordon Smith. Definitely. Humble dude. <laughs> you know. Humble dude. I love listening to him talk, too. Emmy winner. 
and he's talking just just like regular folk. <laughs> like um, us folk. Yeah, us back home folk. <laughs> it was so great hearing him speak, and I, and I know the students got a lot out of it, and I hope all of you guys listening did too. So thank you for sticking with us as thank we you. geeked out. <laughs> a little bit. We, we held it at bay. As much as we could. As much, as much as we Right, could. like the dam can only hold back so much water here. But thanks to all of you guys for listening. Thank you so much for listening. That's Ariel Seagard. And that is Eric Connor. And, and this episode was based on the Q&A moderated by... Was it David O'Leary? It was David O'Leary. By the way, check out his TV show, Project Blue Book, on the History Channel, Tuesday nights. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was edited and mixed, the whole show, by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and me. Executive produced by Tova Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. Special thanks to our events department, Sasha Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See See you you next time. time.